Trainer Talks and Tales acknowledges the traditional owners and custodians of the land in which we're recording this podcast, the Turrbal and Yugara people of Mianjin. We pay our respects to the elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Trainer Talks and Tales love having an array of guests with a variety of opinions. However, the views of the individuals do not necessarily reflect the perspectives of the host facilities. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Trainer Talks and Tales podcast. You are joined, of course, by myself, Daisy, and I am here with Tess. Hey, Daisy. How are you? Good. Thank you. We are both super excited for another episode. We are chatting all about reptiles today, Tess. Hey, but first of all, talk to me about your week. How has your week been? Yeah, good. Thanks, Daisy. Um, it's been very busy in terms of training human-wise and animal-wise as per usual lately, but we've had lots of training wins. Uh, we have some barking owls that are being introduced into our free flight show. We only acquired them end of December. I think it was straight after Christmas and we've already got them off creance and flying gloves, glove, flying out of trees, flying to... Uh, patrons gloves and now Alan counters so they're just progressing really well and that's really satisfying I've never actually trained a barking owl um, from scratch before obviously I've done lots of maintaining of barking owls and their routines or training new behaviors but this is kind of I mean they're one so they're not brothers but yeah seeing them progress every single day is just really satisfying so whatever was a bit of a hurdle the day before um maybe length of casting or maybe a scary um flag or something like that the next day they're progressing so that's been really fun so it's always great to feel like you're improving every day so yeah lots of training wins what about you what's new in your world that's so exciting. I'm actually really keen to try and get down to Lone Pine again and spend an uh, afternoon or morning with you probably in the next couple of weeks. I thought that would be fun. It'd be great to see yeah. um, all of the like progressive training you've done since it was that last, which wasn't even that long ago, but it feels like you've had heaps of new fun things happen. Absolutely. No, I'd love that. Yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, my week has been actually pretty good at work. Um, I've had a few kind of little focus projects that I've been working on. Um, one of the primary trainers is currently on annual leave. So she, I've worked quite closely with her in the past with her primary animal, Sly, um, in just regards to maintaining some behaviours and bringing back behaviours that are slightly broken or have just regressed. Um, so I've focused a little bit on that and had some really cool wins out of that, which is really re- rewarding to you know, see success and see the animals re-understand again. So it's not always just about creating new behaviours. Um, it can be about the maintenance of those behaviours and, you know, working on bringing behaviours back that have slightly regressed. So that's been really great for my learning. Um, and we've started some new, a little bit of some new training with the penguins as well. So where we've got behaviours that are already really strong, we thought it would be a great opportunity to be able to transfer them, to be able to do that in the water as well. So we can encourage swimming while still being able to maintain the behaviours that we do on land, which is pretty cool. So, so far, so good. Still super early days. So I'll keep you guys all posted on how that goes. Yeah, cool. I remember not so long ago, you said that your focus was to have them in the water more. Um, So that makes sense that if they're really good at those certain behaviours, they'd be happy to transfer those skills, hopefully, in theory, to water. So that'd be awesome. 
Yeah, absolutely. And like, I have to give a massive shout out as well to Lucy because she's one of the girls I work with and she's put a lot of time and effort recently into really conditioning some of the penguins that don't like to spend as much time in the water as the others do um, as to getting them into the water. And it's absolutely paying off too. We're starting to see them way more interested in spending time swimming and participating in water feeds, training sessions, etc. So yeah, massive shout out to her because she's definitely helped along the way too. Um, but Tess, before we get into this episode, I did want to do another bit of a shout out because last week at work, I did a presentation with the SEALs and then I had this lovely girl come up to me afterwards. She was so lovely about the podcast. She expressed how much she enjoyed it and that she listens every week, which is the sole reason that me and you do this. Hey, like it's so nice to be able to hear feedback from people and to meet people who listen so just wanted to give a big shout out to Eden if you're listening thank you so much for all the lovely feedback you gave me the other week and we're really glad that you're enjoying it yeah absolutely I mean we've said it a hundred times but it can be quite um involved in terms of time for this podcast so to have someone be like oh I love it so much like thank you so much like yeah no worries I'm gonna go home and I'll do it tonight just for you <laughs> yeah, yeah absolutely 100 <laughs> but we do have um another really exciting episode and I kind of gave you all a little bit of a teaser at the start as we are chatting a little bit more to do with reptiles this week and me and Tess are gradually becoming more and more reptile girlies as it goes yeah uh, but we have Jake, who's joining us from Symbio Wildlife Park. Uh, he used to work at Australian Reptile Park or ARP, where he's primarily with reptiles. And now he works across a few different variety of species. So we chat to him about obviously his favorite species, Komodos, touch on some reptile training. And then we actually chat about a new topic, which is habitat design, which is which was really interesting. I got a lot out of it. Um, so we really hope that you guys do too. Enjoy the app. Jake, thank you so much for joining me and Tess today on Trainer Talks and Tales. We are so excited to have you on. We've been chatting about this for a little while, so it's great to have you here. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, we're so excited too. We have so much to cover on today's episode. But before we get started, obviously, we love to start the episode with our Fast Five. Are you happy if we get into that? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Question one, favorite bird species? Oh, cassowary. Snakes or spiders? Snakes. Blondes or brunettes? Brunettes. Good answer. Uh, favorite state in Australia? <laughs> oh, WA. And finally, somewhere that you are traveling to this year? Singapore in like three weeks. I'm very excited. So cool. Nice. Very jealous. Singapore is amazing. I love Singapore. Yeah, it's beautiful. Also, country. good answer on number three. Yeah. Because oh. there's two brunettes hosting this. So, <laughs> well done. I was like, I have to say that. <laughs> Tactful. Yes. And my, and my wife's a brunette. So, all right well thank you so much for joining us jake it's really exciting to have you on um we've been really keen to chat i remember you and i talked about this um months ago on the on the conference so it's good to finally have the um ball rolling so it's good to have you here uh first of all we'd like to talk to anyone on our podcast about their career and their pathway into the industry so can you tell us a little bit more about your current role and how you got there yeah, absolutely. Uh, so currently I'm at the beautiful Symbio Wildlife Park, which, which is just south of Sydney. Um, but I guess for me, uh, very similar to, to a lot of people in the industry, it all started very young. I was probably three or four years old when uh, I developed a really strong interest and uh, passion for wildlife and it just kind of never went away. And uh, reptiles has always been my, my thing. That's always been my focus. 
right throughout, uh, you know, growing up and, and into my career. Um, so probably when I hit, uh, you know, the end of school, I kind of was faced with the decision of which direction to head. Uh, I knew I wanted to work with reptiles, but I wasn't quite sure whether I wanted to uh, maybe work with reptiles in the field, become an ecologist, do survey work, that kind of thing, or whether I wanted to head into the zoo industry. Uh, but one thing that I was sure of is uh, that I wanted to do some volunteer work at the Australian Reptile Park, which I was just about an hour and a half up the road for me. So a bit of a drive, but uh, I started volunteering there just one day a week and then one day turned into two days. And then about 10 months or so into my volunteering there, I was actually offered a, a full-time position and uh, of course took it. And that was kind of my uh, foot in the door into the industry. And I was actually at uh, ARP for just under eight years. And during my time there, I got to do some, yeah, really incredible things. I um, yeah, I look back on my time there with really uh, fond memories. And I actually worked my way up to uh, head reptile keeper. So I was overseeing the entire department, multiple staff, a very large perp collection and uh, everything that kind of goes along with the day-to-day -day running of a, of a department within a facility. So it was a lot of fun. Uh, and then about halfway through last year, I actually made the uh, move down to Symbio Wildlife Park. So I've been there about uh, seven months now and yeah, loving it down there just the same. It's, um, yeah, it's a beautiful place. So cool. And I can't actually believe that you drove an hour and a half, like every day for eight years, or did you end up moving closer? No, I, I moved up when I <laughs> okay, got I was the like, full-time wow. gig. But I did, um, I did drive, yeah, a long way to uh, do those volunteer days, but hey, it, uh, it paid off in the end. I ended up with a, a full-time gig. So um, yeah, it was certainly worth it. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely paid off. <laughs> love, like, I love how you said it, like, we love hearing about like real organic progression as well, like starting as just a keeper and then working your way up to a head keeper role, like just from all the experience and knowledge you've got, like, that's so awesome. I hate to admit, but I actually have never been to the ARP or Symbio, and it's definitely on my list of places to go. But I guess working at Symbio, could you maybe tell us a little bit more about their collection or some of the animals that you oversee? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Symbio has been around a little while now, uh, over four decades, um, and it was uh, taken over by the current owners in 2000, the Radnich family. And since then, it's really uh, grown and developed into uh, as I've mentioned, a really beautiful place and just a, I guess, a fantastic day out. There's a really diverse collection, uh, both native and exotic species. So some of the species we exhibit include uh, very cute red pandas, uh, meerkats, we've got ring-tailed lemurs, a cheetah, uh, a really nice uh, native bird collection as well. It seems like a lot of zoos are almost moving away from bird collections and aviaries, but they are something that uh, Symbio does very, very well. And then we have a pretty nice collection of native and exotic reptiles as well, my favourite. And, um, of course, your favourite, Daisy. We just got uh, some little penguins just about a month or so ago. So uh, they've been a, a real crowd favourite far. <laughs> and, um, yeah, they've been a very popular addition to the, the collection. Penguins are the best. Sounds good. <laughs> I remember I, I was there it was like the the penguins coming soon I was like oh that's gonna be so good so good to know that they're there it'll be um a great exhibit to see I'd be keen to come back and check that out <laughs> yeah please anyway, do it's um yeah this isn't about penguins <laughs> sorry Daisy <laughs> god damn it um, <laughs> 
Now, um, we know that you love Komodos. You're not the first person on this po- podcast that loves to talk about a Komodo. Um, <laughs> and actually, <laughs> ARP was the first facility in Australia to successfully breed these dragons, which is amazing. And you're actually lucky enough to be part of that. Can you tell us a little bit more about what into what went into ensuring such success with them? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Komodos are a species that, uh, whilst I don't work with them anymore, very near and dear to my heart. And I yeah, worked with them my entire time at Reptile Park. And I was really fortunate to, I guess, oversee the the entire breeding process. I was head keeper at the time when we bred those dragons. So it was a really exciting uh, thing for not, not only us as a facility and for us personally, but also pretty major for the the species as a whole, which I know Chris touched on um, in his episode end of last year. So, uh, yeah, a really significant thing. I think one thing we did well with the dragons was we tried to reach out to as many people as we possibly could. We tried to gather as much information because there was actually very little on breeding Komodos as a whole uh, across the globe. It had, of course, never been done in Australia. And so it was kind of up to us to uh, liaise with so many people around the world um, we put a lot of uh, effort into into doing that and bugged a lot of people from keepers in california to the czech republic to uh you know all over europe new york we were just <laughs> touching base with everyone across the globe and that, i guess that's the beauty of uh, social media as well you can just uh hit send on a, on a message right now and and grab a whole bunch of really valuable in, information from anyone that will provide it. Uh, so yeah, we went through a lot of trial and error ourselves. Um, it took us a couple of years to, to really dial in what those dragons needed, what we needed to do on our part. But yeah, thankfully uh, we were successful and we had those beautiful babies hatch out uh, in April, 2022. So they're coming up on almost two years old now. That is insane. And like a massive congratulations to you and the whole team. There's obviously a huge amount of work that's gone into that. And we love the fact that this industry allows us to be able to, you know, reach out and communicate to so many different people around the world so that we can all work together and ensuring that we can provide the best care, welfare, and, you know, incredible breeding stuff like that. Is the idea to, you know, obviously you're not ARP anymore, but do you know if the idea is to continue to breed? Like, is there a pretty good genetic diversity within Australia? Yeah, so um, even though I'm not working with dragons, I'm still pretty heavily involved with the species and and communicating with other keepers that uh, keep dragons throughout the country. So certainly the plan moving forward is to uh, have further breeding success at other facilities that that hopefully in another 10, 15 years time, we have uh, a really nice genetically diverse cohort of dragons um, coming through to kind of be replacing the the existing dragons because uh, although Komodos have been kept in captivity for a long time, uh, they historically haven't lived all that long. The uh, kind of average lifespan for a male dragon is about half the uh, half of what a, a wild dragon would be. Um, so, sorry, a Komodo in a zoo would be living about half the uh, life that a, a wild dragon would be. So uh, it's a little bit alarming there. And I guess a really important thing for new younger dragons to be coming through uh, to be replacing those older dragons, whilst at the same tr- time trying to advance husbandry so that those older dragons uh, can be kind of reaching their their wild potential. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I feel like most of the time we hear, like, I'd say, what, probably 90% of species almost double their lifespan in human care. So it's really interesting hearing that Komodos are one of those that are 
not and you know what we can do to work together to increase that lifespan within human care as well yeah absolutely and thankfully during the last i guess decade or so there's been uh, a lot of time and effort that's been spent throughout the world looking into komodo husbandry and why uh, we're not quite seeing um, these longer lifespans and uh, there's a few key things that are contributing factors and a lot of those are, are starting to change now and so hopefully uh, going into the future, we'll see really great advanced uh, Komodo husbandry, which will just lead to more and more success with the species in human care. Yeah, yeah. it sounds like I mean, the... exciting. Hey, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, I, I mean, I would only think that, I, from my understanding, is that Komodos would just be running kilometers, like chasing down really big things um, out there in the wild. So I'm wondering if that's like hard to replicate in terms of like physical exertion in human care. That that's that's um all that came to mind. But yeah, crazy, but interesting that it's um on the forefront of your minds and you're making some um really cool changes about that or trying to see um what the root of that cause is so that's cool yeah it's one of those things that i think everyone that with komodos is in the same boat uh, we're all kind of striving for better care longer lifespans fitter dragons because as you said tess um, overall fitness and movement is is one of the i guess key contributing factors so getting komodos moving as much in, as possible in uh, a zoo setting is a real challenge but really important for their their longevity so yeah there are species that i could of course talk about all day um <laughs> but yeah one that one that is hopefully going to have a very bright uh, future in australian facilities seems to be a common thing about people coming on this podcast and wanting to talk about komodo dragons all the time yeah. <laughs> i mean we're I here it, for it we're not reptile girls but we're transitioning into reptile girls pretty quickly that's for sure um, now you touched on, like you were talking about husbandry earlier, a little bit with the Komodo. So what are some things that you kind of need to keep in mind when you're working with Komodos in regards to sort of their husbandry and, and possibly even your safety as well? Yeah. So I guess, uh, one of the key things to be focusing on with any reptile really is how you are meeting their environmental needs. Um, of course, reptiles are ectothermic. Uh, so they're so reliant on their external environment for everything they do in their life. So by, uh, I guess, providing that adequate environment, uh, that's a really good good start. And then in the case of Komodos, as I mentioned, getting them moving, um, keeping them fit is of utmost importance. So something that we did for a very long time and still continues at Reptile Park, which is, I guess, a little bit unorthodox. Um, you don't see it too much in zoos, but we actually used to uh, take our dragons for walks uh, out into the park area for about an hour or so each day and that way they would be getting their steps up they'd be moving climbing uh just you know i think it was really beneficial for their overall fitness and also well-being of course and uh, i think that was probably also one of the the key contributing factors to uh, why we were successful with the breeding we had a really fit um, young female there that was uh kind of in her prime and um yeah we uh of course, saw the the success. So I guess the the proof was in the pudding a little bit, a little bit there with the amount of effort and time that we uh, put into those dragons and their um, overall fitness. Yeah, that's awesome. We have a couple of reptile keepers at Lone Pine at the moment that are putting a lot of effort into that and trying to make um, those monitors and parentes and that kind of thing like you know do a lot more exercise and it would be challenging like you said like that's tricky so they're um, target training them into a 
old exhibit, like an old Tassie Devil exhibit and letting them like just, you know, go for gold in there. And you can see because there's so many smells, they really are moving around. So the fact that you guys were having them walk through the whole park, like that's so cool. That's a lot of exercise. So um, that would be, you know, great for them mentally and physically. That's for sure. So cool. Now, um, I, I actually, Chris, quickly, Tess, I was just going to say, I actually, for my cert three, back when it was um captive animals you remember we had to like design an enclosure mine was I chose to do a Komodo dragon enclosure and it was so fun designing it based on like their natural habitats it was a lot of fun like adding in water and like all different things for them to walk around and climb and exercise so very cool (laughs) awesome um now I actually was just thinking in terms of training reptiles that must be so challenging and I don't think enough credit is um given because for birds raptors like they have a really high food drive maybe they'll lapse a little bit when they're a bit broody but it's still there but you guys have to struggle with like winter and like having no food drive so can you tell us a little bit more about um some of the faith uh, challenges you face training reptiles and like any kind of cooperative care behaviors that you you did train um with these guys yeah, for sure. Yeah, as you said, um, yeah, training in reptiles is a real tricky one. Um, I guess the primary reason for that is, I guess, when you're training any species, really, the primary reinforcer that you're using is uh, food. And reptiles don't eat, eat a lot of food, or they may want to eat a lot of food, but they shouldn't be eating a lot of food. And so uh, it's really hard to manage training and mar- manage food intake uh, at the same time. Um, to give you a perfect example, our male Komodo dragon, he could go six weeks without feed and then he would get a big carcass feed and might eat eight or 10 kilos and then it might be another month <laughs> before he's fed. And so, uh, you know, training an animal like that um, and using food as a reinforcer is um, yeah a real challenge because you can end up with a very obese reptile very quickly if you are um, you know pumping the the food into them so yeah you do have to be a little bit selective about which species you uh, elect to I guess pursue some training with Um, but in terms of cooperative care uh, one really cool thing that we actually did with our female Komodo dragon was we had her really well conditioned to um, being ultrasounded by the vet Uh, because a massive part of managing a female Komodo dragon in captivity, particularly one that's reproductive, is looking at her uh, ovarian follicles, what size they are, and that will kind of determine uh, where she's at, when you pair your dragons. So it's really important to know what size those follicles are, and it's really hard to know that without um, having an ultrasound done. So something that we started doing with our female Komodo when she was quite young is we would actually pick her up in a a certain way to where her back was kind of pressed against our chest, if that makes sense. And we would be holding her arms and her legs. And that way her entire abdomen would be exposed and was free for the vet to uh, move a probe around on. And of course, at the start, she wasn't real keen on it. But over time of just slowly doing this with her and and getting her used to the process, um, by the time she was sexually mature, we could hold her up for five, six minutes at a time. And she would sit there perfectly still in her arms. And that way the vet could get a really clear image of her follicles and uh, yeah, tell us exactly what was going on internally so that we could base all our uh, decisions from that. So uh, yeah, that was uh, something pretty cool that we were involved with, with that uh, female dragon. That's so cool. And like, if you think about that, what you've just said, like 
you know, you've had the first ever breeding program in Australia for Komodo dragons, and you're able to be successful with that because of the cooperative care training that you guys have put so much effort and time into. So again, like that's incredible work. You guys should be really stoked with that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. A lot of what, um, a lot of what we were basing our pairings off was the size of those follicles. You do not want to put uh, two Komodo dragons in the same exhibit if those follicles aren't nice and swollen and, and ready to, um, I guess, travel in and uh, become eggs eventually. So, uh, yeah, it was really up to the female as to when we were pairing. And that was all based off that, um, off that ultrasound work that we did with her. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. I'm excited to kind of eventually like hear more about what you guys can train with reptiles in the future and um, how you can, you know, adjust different training techniques to suit that, that particular taxa and the different challenges that they come across. But I know that earlier Tess said we're not going to be talking about penguins, but we actually are talking about penguins. <laughs> raring to go to talk about penguins. Um, oh, so yeah, earlier, <laughs> Tess forgot, but I'm so excited. Um, earlier, obviously, you mentioned that Symbio have just announced their brand new little blue penguin habitat, which is so exciting. It looks incredible. We have been liaising a little bit about it and, you know, chatting through some habitat and LSS stuff with it. What sort of natural little blue, little blue penguin behaviors did you consider when designing that habitat? Yeah, well, I mean, you're probably far better suited to talk about penguins than I am. They're certainly not my <laughs> uh, strong suit. But um, yeah, we we wanted to create a habitat for these penguins that was, I guess, really complex and really suited their uh, their needs and their and their natural behaviors. So um, something that uh, was a big priority right from the start was, of course, the pool. Uh, they're spending the majority of their day in the water and we wanted to create a pool for these penguins that was um, I guess really diverse has had some really deep sections some shallower sections um, there was some narrower sections where they could kind of swim through and then it opens back up into a, a much larger portion of the pool so uh, yeah essentially we wanted to create a really complex uh, environment for them to be swimming around in and then of course um, as we know little penguins they uh, come out onto the the land at night time and enter a, a den or a nest or a, a burrow or whatever you want to call it and so we actually uh, provided these penguins with an indoor space as well where all their little burrows are located so they could leave the water get away from the water as they naturally would and uh, yeah come up there over night time and uh, spend the night up there and then in the morning of course uh, they're generally straight back into the pool and swimming around and having a having a great old time so um yeah it's been really fun to be involved in i kind of started at symbio just as the exhibit was uh kicking off so i kind of i've had to um have, have seen it right from the start which has been really exciting and uh yeah to see those penguins go in just about five weeks or so ago now um we were all all very excited yeah, that's awesome. I love that I was like, we're not here to talk about penguins. And then I'm like, yeah, let's talk about penguins. Um, but that's really exciting. Like that's that must be so cool to see them in that new exhibit and just being like, woo, like just exploring those, um, you know, places and everything within a new um, exhibit. That's so cool. That must be so um, rewarding to watch. Now, Daisy mentioned before that in our cert, like a few of us have, have all designed a, an exhibit and it's all really cool because you're like, yeah, this, 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 this. And it's so easy to have all these dream goals for an exhibit, but, you know, the actual process involved can be pretty hectic. Can you run us through some of the steps that were involved with designing this exhibit um, and having it, you know, go from the ground all the way up? 
Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I guess I've been very fortunate uh, throughout my career to be involved in uh, quite a number of exhibit builds, some uh, quite large. So uh, yeah, I've had had the opportunity to to go through all that and and see what works and and more importantly what doesn't. And I think when you're designing any exhibit, um, there really should be three things that you're considering. Uh, the first is of course the animals and their needs and their requirements. Um, you then have your visitors that are that are visiting the zoo and and seeing those animals. And then uh, one that is often neglected is is your keeping staff. Um, there's so many exhibits uh, that that are built right around the world where um, you know staff and and I guess the um, you know the daily maintenance of those exhibits aren't aren't so well considered and I think that's um, you yeah, know something that's that's really important because you know as as keepers we're in those exhibits every day um, you know we know them like the back of our hands and you know every issue with the with the exhibit and sometimes you are kind of banging your head against a wall wishing you were involved right from the start because you would have done a few things differently so I think if you can yeah, obviously uh, do it for the animals, do it for the visitors and do it for the keepers. I think you can create a, a really nice exhibit. And, and this penguin exhibit is a perfect uh, example of that. And um, yeah, I think the other thing to um, really consider is, is the planning process. Um, you don't want to jump into these things too quickly, especially if it's a really large exhibit. You want to spend a long time uh, thinking about it, talking about it, and really there probably should be months of, of planning that goes into some of these exhibits before a shovel even hits the ground. So um, yeah, there's there's plenty of things to consider, but I think uh, if you can nail the planning and you can nail, um, you know, really getting the exhibit built for those, um, you know, those three things that I mentioned, um, then you should end up with a, a beautiful um, exhibit that, that suits everyone. And I see you talk... You're talking about when the drains are at the highest point of the exhibit, not the <laughs> lowest point of the exhibit. <laughs> I feel like we see that more often than not in a lot of habitats. Oh, I've worked with a few of those. <laughs> <laughs> Was there any like major challenges that I guess you guys came across when designing the penguin habitat? Um, it went pretty smoothly, really, considering the size of the, the build. Um, but there's always challenges, especially when um, you know, there's external people involved and there's so many things, especially with an outdoor exhibit that are beyond your control, particularly the weather. Um, I guess one funny kind of day that we had during the build was when the all important uh, underwater viewing glass was being installed. Um, we have two very large windows that were, were going in uh, several inches thick and weigh about 800 kilos or so each. So that was a a pretty nerve-wracking day and we had to get them uh, craned in of course and uh so we're all ready to go sitting there of a morning and the crane turns up and the crane doesn't work so uh that was that was a bit of a, a shock to all of us <laughs> turns out you need to uh, you need to charge a crane before you can use it and um it's not okay. like charging an iphone took all I would day not have um, <laughs> i just assume it was like a fuel based thing i wouldn't have even thought about that <laughs> yeah so we had to wait around for you know five or six hours for this crane <laughs> to get enough charge so we could um, um get these windows in and we were seeing rain on the radar and we were thinking we might have to do this in the rain or we might have to cancel it and it was a big ordeal but yeah eventually we got them in uh no cracks no leaks no issues and um yeah it was a challenging day but it was a, of course a pretty monumental one as well because uh you know it really started to look like a, a penguin pool once those big windows went in 
Yeah, that's amazing. It all sounds like it came together really smoothly, pretty much, and really nicely. And I'm I'm excited to get down there and hopefully see the penguins. And I'm assuming that you have got a very exciting penguin training program that's about to start too. <laughs> Love to see all your penguin <laughs> training. <laughs> yeah, the um yeah the girls are doing an amazing job. Um, you know, when they they first turned up, of course, they were a little bit unsure as to who all these new people were and a brand new exhibit. So there was a few. Uh, teething issues and um you know we had a few times where the penguins didn't quite you know do what we we needed or wanted them to do but um yeah the girls have done an amazing job working through all that and uh yeah they're they're pretty well behaved little little penguins now they're the best i know this chick that's obsessed with penguins that i can you know hit you off with talk about a potoscope so we've got training <laughs> questions. i love a training chat yeah, especially when it's to do with penguins yeah. as well <laughs> <laughs> Now we've just got a couple more questions um, before we wrap up that actually sent in from our listeners. We love to get a few questions from our listeners every week. Um, they were quite good ones, actually. Not that they're not other times, but um, <laughs> what exotic <laughs> reptile species would you like to see return to the region and why was the first question. Oh, that's a hard one. Um, so many. We, um, yeah, we've been really, I guess, fortunate in Australia to, have seen some really incredible exotic reptiles over the years, but unfortunately some of those have been lost from the region just, uh, you know, through lack of breeding or um, perhaps elderly animals were, were imported and, and it just never happened. Um, one species that I've worked with previously and is no longer in the region at all is Fijian banded iguanas. Uh, I definitely love my iguanas. They're, they're one of my favorite reptiles and particularly those Fijian species. So uh, yeah, I'd maybe say Fijian banded iguanas. They're a really beautiful lizard. Um, they display really well. There's, uh, I guess, a great conservation message there as well. They're incredibly uh, threatened throughout the islands of, of Fiji. Um, we do still have the Fijian crested iguana in the region, which uh, was this year's focal species for the ASDK fundraiser. Um, but the Fijian banded iguanas are a little different and um, I love them. So I'd, I'd love to see those come back in at some point, they're they're very common in captivity uh, in Europe and the and the US and Canada. So um, it would be easy enough to get them back in, and I'd love to see that. Yeah, that would be awesome. So cool. Obviously, like it's so clear to us and everyone listening that you're obsessed with reptiles, and that's definitely your passion. <laughs> Who or what, I guess, was your inspiration around working with reptiles? Oh, I'd have to say probably. I mean, it's a it's a bit of a cliche answer. It's a very common one, but Steve Irwin was a massive uh, influence on me. I mean, I grew up in the in the late '90s when Steve was kind of at his peak uh, on TV all the time, uh, just everywhere. He was massive, you know, 25 or so years ago, um, and yeah, right up until his his death. So, uh, yeah, I'd have to say Steve Irwin was probably one of the biggest influences on me, but. Um, yeah, I have heaps of influences. Every you know one I talk to in the zoo industry is um, always really inspirational, and I think it's a really great community to to be a part of. And um, yeah, everyone kind of inspires everyone. Um, so yeah, I think that's you know that's a really nice thing about our industry. That's a good answer. I like that, Steve Owen, but also everyone else. I love that. Yeah, <laughs> that's <yeah>. so good. <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like we're in like our prime at the moment for the industry, like with connections and communications around the world and like having all these great connections with different people. It's so good. I love it. Yeah. It's a very collaborative environment the last couple of years. Hey, 
It now, is. Now, we do have one more final question. It is, do you think zoos are able to readjust public understanding on varanids beyond just a big lizard? Quotation marks there. You didn't see them because <laughs> you're on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Or well, firstly, I love the fact that you use the word varanid. Um, very proud. Oh, <laughs> that, that was whoever whoever wrote the question in. That was not us. <laughs> that was not us. <laughs> I won't take credit for that. Well, for those that don't know, the the word varanid is, I guess, the 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 proper way of saying monitor lizard or uh, goanna, if you want to be really colloquial. But um, yeah, I think that zoos um, probably do need to do a little bit better in in terms of how they uh, portray large lizards. I think for so long, particularly going back 30, 40 years, um, you know, a zoo would acquire a Komodo because they were big and impressive and a big draw card and something for people to do an R at. And that was about the extent of it. And, um, you know, I think it's taken, you know, right up until recently for everyone to realize that these animals are incredibly intelligent. And I mean, there's so much to them beyond the fact that they're three meters long. And I think that, um, that really needs to be uh, probably communicated a little bit better. And that was something that we were really heavily involved with at Reptile Park with our Komodos because during the walks, you know, people would come up to us and and we had the opportunity to chat face-to-face with people about Komodos. And of course, initially everyone's um, kind of a bit taken aback by the, the size of them, but um, I guess you can kind of really push beyond that when you're having a one-on-one conversation with someone and talk about their intelligence and, I guess the fact that, um, you know, they've been around for millions of years and they're just, you know, basically a modern day dinosaur. And um, yeah, I think that the zoos are moving that way, but yeah, could certainly um, continue to to do better by their, their varanids because they're incredible. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And I think it's really cool because we heard last week with Claire, um, or a couple of weeks ago, sorry, when she spoke about sharks and sort of building a really good awareness and education around sharks. And then we're hearing from you about it just comes down to awareness and education and people just getting to know the species a little bit more. And it just allows people to fall in love with them more and more and understand, you know, what a role they play in all of our ecosystems around the world. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's so important, especially for those larger, I guess, more dangerous, commonly feared species to kind of peel back the layers a bit. Yeah, 100 percent. Well, Jake, I honestly feel like we could probably sit here for another couple of hours and just chit chat away, but unfortunately we do have to wrap this up. It has been such a pleasure having you on the podcast. I really think that so many of our listeners are going to get a lot out of this chat. And what we didn't tell you actually earlier is the fact that you got the most amount of listener questions in ever on this podcast. So clearly everyone wants wants to hear about reptiles. We had to like tighten it down to a few questions, otherwise it would have been (laughs) Um, but yeah, again, thank you so much for your time, Jake. We are super grateful for having you on the podcast. Yeah, no worries. Thank you so much. And um, yeah, I'm a huge fan of what you girls are doing. You've got so much traction over the last, you know, six, seven months since you've started this. Everyone at work is, you know, a huge fan. And um, yeah, I think you're, you're doing some really great things for, for our industry. Ah, oh, thank you. So good. That's we awesome. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks again, Jake. We'll speak to you soon. Thank you, Jake. Well, Daisy, that was very interesting. I thought that we covered a couple of topics there, not just the Komodos, but the training and also habitat design. So that was a really interesting chat. I really enjoyed it. 
Yeah, absolutely. Me too. And it's nice when I think both of me and you have been liaising with Jake for a little while now about a few different things, um, chatted to him at the conference that you did. Um, so it's great to finally be able to get those guests on the podcast and chat to them and learn way more about what they've been doing in their career. And Jake's obviously had an incredible career and really interesting to learn from. So we really hope that you enjoyed that episode, guys. Yes. And as Daisy said, there has been a few people that we have been in contact with and said, yeah, we'd love to have you on Train Talks and Tales. Don't think that I've forgotten. You're on my list mentally or on my phone, but we just have to get through a lot of guests. So you'll be on there. Anyway, guys, yep. enjoy the rest of your week. See you next week. Bye.